We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha, and welcome to the Layman's Lounge we podcast, which is the ministry of the laymanslounge.com, where we exist to bring everyday theology to encourage Christians for everyday life. My name is Jason Estopinal. I'm a business process analyst and a YWAMer in Kona, Hawaii. And on the other line is Joe Humphreys, an appliance salesman from Mount Vernon, Washington. What's up, Joe? Hello, everybody. I was um, racking my brain trying to think of a, uh, a helpful tip for appliances. And this happens all the time. But if you're going to buy a refrigerator, don't measure the refrigerator dimensions measure the space that's there (laughs) thank you for the logic this morning brother Mm -hmm. yes today we have on the line with we have on the line dr carl truman aloha dr truman how are you i'm doing very well thanks very much and yourselves doing good i'm in hawaii as you know today's the first interview i'm doing outside so if you hear the birds chirping don't be jealous and don't be annoyed. Uh, yeah, Dr. Truman is a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He is currently professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. Uh, he's authored or edit, edited dozens of books, including, I'm going to hit you with a few here, The Creedal Imperative, and then forthcoming with Crossway, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the road to sexual revolution. We could literally have taken this inter- interview anywhere today. So, so maybe we can even circle back on that later. And then um, another book and what we're going to be talking about today is Luther on the Christian Life, Cross and Freedom. So that's Martin Luther. Um, yeah, Dr. Truman's Luther on the Christian Life, Cross and Freedom is part of the Theologians of the Christian Life series from Crossway. And before we get into the interview, I'm going to blast you all with something awesome. Um, layman's lounge podcast we're actually going to give away to one winner seven different volumes from from that series including 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 the luther one the bovink one augustine packer warfield and a few more and for seven days in a row we're we're gonna do seven days of glory so each day someone's gonna win seven seven awesome books like one day we're just going to do all Abraham Kuyper books. One day all Bob Inc. One day a bunch of biblical theology books. So anyways, go to our Instagram and Facebook and uh, follow us and see, see about those contests. So anyways, um, today we're talking about Martin Luther and we've got, we've got an authority on the man here today. Um, and for me, some of the most comp- compelling and practical truth about Christianity that I've ever read was literally in the last few months that I've been reading Luther, but that wasn't always the case. So I don't know if you know, Dr. Truman, but there's this rapper guy named Flame. Have you heard of Flame? I have, I, I, I'm not hugely into the rap scene, I'm afraid. So, I, I'm, no. not, I'm not into the rap scene either, but some reformed Facebook group started blasting this guy Flame. They're like, he's, because I guess he was a reform rapper and he jumped ship and he's Lutheran now, they said. And he, he released a, an album called Extra Nose. And, um, and there was a, and so I was like, oh, interesting. So I thought I'd listen to it. And, um, you, you know, it kind of threw the, the bath 
the baby out with the bathwater, but he did bring up some good points, and this was one of them. He's like, "We do you want me to rap it or say it? I'm joking. I'll say it. <laughs> he said, we revere the Holy Luther, but we never actually read him. And I was like, ooh, that is so true. Like, I claim to be all well-read, but I think I've only read his Galatians commentary. And that was maybe like 10 years ago. So I started reading him again, and my mind was blown. And it was some of the most tangible, helpful truths for my daily Christian life um, that, that really guided and informed. So when all, when all is said and done, Luther doesn't seem to, to like write, write volumes on, um, can God make a martini so big he can't drink it? but things that are always bouncing around in our heads and our hearts. And he sort of puts words to them in, in categories. And I know we'll hit some of those categories. Um, but all that to say, I love the following passage from, from, your, from your book, Dr. Truman, where you said, while the world, even the Christian world, remains populated by the self-important and the self-righteous, the figure of Luther with his rumbustuous theology and his cutting humor will not cease to be relevant. Many of his writings have a refreshing and appropriately irreverent style to them, tearing down the pompous and the self-assured. They offer a breath of fresh air amid a forced and stale piety and his emphasis on the objectivity of the action of God in Christ puts all things in perspective and exposes our lives outside of Christ for what they are. Acts in a silly farce played out in the shadow of the beckoning grave. You're a good writer. That's a good, that's pretty good. But all that to say, how, how did you come to find this man? What, what have you gleaned the most from him and why have you stayed concerning yourself with him? Well, I, I, I discovered him when I was an undergraduate, I, I became a Christian in my first year or so at university and, uh, towards the end of my time at university, my mind was moving towards what I want to do next. And uh, I was thinking it would be interesting to do some historical research. My mind was beginning to move towards postgraduate work in history. And I came across Roland Bainton's uh, biography of Luther, Here I Stand, in a bookstore. Picked it up, took it home, started reading it. And uh, Luther's life is full of action, full of a lot of events. It's an exciting Hollywood type script. So that was how I first became interested in Luther. He, he struck me as a, as a fascinating action man of history. Then as I moved into my postgraduate work, I started to, to read his writings for myself and found that, that what I'd noted about his life, that it was a very relatable, exciting drama, uh, was also true of much of his writings. Uh, and more than that, he, he had this remarkable common touch in the way he expressed himself. Uh, he was a university professor. That was his, his, his primary calling, uh, if you like, when, when he first stumbles into Reformation. But he was also a priest and a pastor. So his life's work involved him not only addressing the needs of a, of a student a lecture hall audience, but also the needs of, of ordinary people in the town of Wittenberg, which was a, a small rural town. It was not a sophisticated metropolis, even by the standards of the day. If you visit there today, in fact, it's, it's what they call, they call in America, sort of, it's a one-horse town. It's a couple of streets that intersect each other. Luther was really in the sticks, and, and much of his work was done pastoring ordinary people, struggling with 
the ordinary questions of the Christian life, uh, from doubt to temptation. These were all of the things that he was having to deal with on a daily basis. And, and so as I read him, I found him to be a very down-to-earth, very practical, very relatable sort of person. Uh, and as you, you touched on, his, you know, his emphasis on Christ and his emphasis on the, the objectivity of the gospel, that ultimately the gospel is not something we do, it's something God does for us, mm-hmm. was a very refreshing and also reassuring uh, thing to hear uh, as a young Christian, and indeed throughout my Christian life. Uh, that's something that I've gone back to again and again. I think all Christians can relate to the fact that we don't measure up. We can all relate to the fact that something inside us tells us we should measure up, and if we don't measure up, we're in serious trouble. And that's where the external word of grace that God speaks in Christ becomes so important to us. Nice. What You know, like when Queen, that band, played, they were probably bummed because everyone probably always wanted them to play Bohemian Rhapsody, and they probably got <laughs> yes. over saying the same song. But I... <laughs> I got I got to ask you man can you give me like two or th- two or three of those classic luther anecdotes like about constipate constipation and and <laughs> beaten with sticks and farts and oh, give oh us yeah. two or three of them yeah well he's um one of his his answers to somebody who's being tempted by the devil uh, luther says that he himself his, his strategy was to, to fart in the face of the devil to scare him away uh, and but he qualified that by saying that he had heard that a woman in magdeburg had tried that strategy and the devil had gone away and, and found a big stick and come back and, and beaten her black and blue so yeah, so luther was a very I mean, he did suffer from constipation, so his bowels were always on his mind from that perspective. And uh, he was also, you know, he, he prided himself on being able to connect with peasants. His was a very earthy world. And so the language that he used and the analogies that he would use would, would often be somewhat earthier than, than we would typically use today in, in a respectable Presbyterian or, or Baptist pulpit. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Luther was a very earthy figure. Also, but just connected to that, um, he he lives in a very different world to us. I mean, when Luther talks about the devil coming and tempting him, Luther was very much a medieval man. He really felt the devil as a physical presence. That's not something you find in in say Calvin or the other reformers, yeah. who are much more men of the the modern age in that sense. For Luther, Luther's world was profoundly enchanted, Mm. that it was a world full of spirits, hobgoblins, etc. So there's that aspect of Luther that is kind of unusual when we read him. It it takes a bit of an imaginative leap to get back into the world that that Luther experienced, that Luther imagined. Yeah, that was something that that Joe and I, um, we've been talking about the last few days as we've been reading the book in parallel, that you had you made, really made it clear that he really lived in I think you even said like died as as a medieval man and and I it, it, you know it, it actually brought so much clarity so many things and and that you had mentioned like you know in in his mind and in those days you essentially couldn't go into a forest without thinking you might bump into like a pixie or a troll or a demon yeah. and that you know thunder and lightning wasn't just you know some natural phenomenon phenomena so what can you give it like what was that world that he lived in i know you kind of 
touched on that, but the, a world that, that would literally drive him to fear because there's lightning thunder around him. Yeah, it's, it's what sociologists would call an enchanted world. You know, it's generally accepted now we live in a pretty disenchanted world. Now, I'm guessing in Hawaii, as in, in, in the rural background that I come from or my wife comes from, there are still people for whom the world is very enchanted. Yeah. It's, it, it's not just a question of scientific laws, but it has a, a magical power about it. Well, that was very much Luther's world that, yeah. uh, uh, you know, when he's narrowly missed by a bolt of lightning, when he's returning to university as a young man and, and the, the famous moment where he calls out St. Anne, save me and I'll become a monk. And he, he shifts his career path from going into law to, to becoming a priest, uh, a monk and a priest. When he's narrowly missed by a bolt of lightning, that isn't just as you and I would think of it. Oh, wow. It was a lucky escape. You know, all those ice crystals bashing around and the electric charge earthing itself just by almost took me out. Yeah. For Luther, things like that are much more, they're the direct hand of God. God is warning him about something there. And, and I must say, as a Christian, I sometimes think that, you know, I, I, I think we've lost something there. That, you know, the Bible does speak about, the, uh, about you know, God being sovereign over nature. And, and, and we, we tend, as, as Westerners these days, to, to think in, in fairly rational kind of categories about that. And I don't think that's wrong. But there are moments, I think, when, when we can be helped by the imaginary world of Luther, the imaginative world of Luther. Thinking, you know, we shouldn't perhaps make the, the rigid separation between the natural and the supernatural. Uh, there are more things uh, on earth and in this world than, than we can comprehend or understand. So I've actually found Luther quite helpful from that perspective too, uh, that it's his very difference on that front to me and to my world that helps me think more critically about the world in which I live. Yeah. And now even moving that over to his, like his, the, you know, the theological norms that he was surrounded in, um, another side note that Joe and I were talking about is you blew my mind when you said that like um, Joe and I both that essentially like medieval, you know, professors and theologians, they weren't dumb. They were like maybe even more well-trained than many of our seminary preppers today. Yeah. And it blew my mind. And so I guess my question is two part is one, what, um, what was his understanding of sort of justification and um, and this is probably like a dumb question, but I'm a layman. But like, how come they didn't just see it like Luther saw it? Yeah, yeah. Very good question. Uh, Luther's mature understanding of justification is essentially that by by trusting in Christ and by trusting in his word, we are united to Christ as to use his analogy. And he doesn't typically use courtroom analogies. We often talk about justification as like a legal verdict. Luther doesn't go for the legal analogies so much as the marriage analogies. And he would say in justification, we are united to Christ as a bride is united to a groom. And what happens when you marry someone is that uh, your property becomes theirs and their property becomes yours. And so for Luther in justification, uh, my sins are given to Christ and Christ's righteousness is given to me. So I am declared righteous 
uh, on on that basis that I'm not intrinsically righteous. It's not as if you slice me up, you'll find, you know, that I'm slowly being transformed into being righteous. I am declared to be righteous in the same way as the bride is declared to be the bride on on the basis of of the marriage. Why they didn't see this? Well, the, there are sort of debates about how much of this idea was grasped by by earlier generations, but I think central to the Luther story is the arrival of a decent edition of the Greek New Testament in 1516, put together by a man who will become one of Luther's deadliest enemies, actually, uh, the French, uh, the uh, Dutch uh, humanist Erasmus, Desiderius Erasmus. He produces uh, a parallel Greek-Latin text of the New Testament, and one of the exciting developments of the, the late 15th, early 16th century is, the, is really the rediscovery of the Greek language in, in Northern Europe. Uh, Greek had been something of a closed book. The Bible had been only really read in, in a Latin translation for, for many generations. The arrival of the, of the Greek text in the early 16th century meant that uh, scholars were, for the first time from for, for centuries, able to actually look at the word of God in the original and and to discuss what the original words mean. And we all know that when you when you translate one language into another, the the words you use to to, to refer to the when you translate a word from one language into another language, often it can it can lose some of the nuances and it can gain nuances that weren't there in the original. It's one of the you know, difficulties of translation. Well, the, the language of justification in the Latin translation of the Bible is uh, is a word that has strong connotations of being made righteous. So when medieval theologians looked at the Bible and, and read about, you know, people being being justified, they naturally read that as having connotations of transformation, that the justification is a process by which you're made righteous. The Greek word lacks those connotations. The Greek word is much more clearly declared righteous. And so you know, one of the reasons why Luther is able to make his breakthrough when previous generations did not, is that Luther has access to the Greek text and has an understanding of the Greek language that allows him to realize that theology built upon the Latin text is at that point rather misleading in terms of what the Bible's actually saying. So just real quick, just theologically, would Luther have seen justification uh, as a result of union with Christ? Um, in some ways, we're asking for a degree of precision there that, that Luther doesn't, doesn't give. Luther's not a systematic theologian in the sense of, of producing a systematic theology where everything is clearly laid out and balanced. He's always writing to circumstances. He's an occasional theologian. He's remarkably consistent, but he's not systematic. And I think that Luther would see... Uh, you know, justification and union with Christ are, I would say, for Luther, simultaneous. You know, they're, they're two sides of the same coin, if you like. Without union, there can be no justification. Uh, if there's no justification, there is no union. So, uh, yeah, uh, the the text uh, that listeners might want to read on this is his, well, there, there are a couple of them. One, you can get hold of his 
small catechism. You'll find that online for free. You go to any of the Lutheran sites, they'll, they'll reprint, they'll, they'll, they'll have that for download. The other one is his 1520 treatise on the freedom of the Christian man, sometimes translated as on Christian liberty or on the liberty of the Christian. And that's his, uh, in some ways, his most glorious statement of uh, union with Christ and, and justification. So I'd recommend that, that listeners go there to think about, to read and think about that. Yeah, a lot of people think the Reformation, you know, and, and you, you drive this home a lot. It's like the, 90, the 95 thesis wasn't, you know, it sort of got things in motion, but it, it wasn't necessarily like his theology wasn't formed. He was more talking to, you know, not even so much necessary justification, all these things. And so there's like a, this, um, you know, de- debate or conversation out there. Of, well, when, when did, you know, Luther kind of get born again? When did, when did he get it? And you had, you had to observe something really cool. I think it was in an interview I read, I listened to, but you said um, maybe it was around 15, like 15, 15, 15, 16, his lectures on Romans. We knew he did them, but we didn't know what he was saying. But then you said that, of all places, some records were found in the Vatican yeah, um, yeah. that sort of shatter, in your words, shatter, shatter medieval theology. And, and you hit this, and this was so helpful, even for my own life, as this, as, um, and can you speak to this, sin as a wound um, that needed to be healed, or if sin is something that makes you dead, you needed to be resurrected. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's, that was so helpful just for the, the daily Christian. Can you speak to that? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think the the development of Luther, really the, the big exciting years in terms of his development are sort of 1515 to 1520. And you correctly point out that the 95 Theses, they're almost a sideshow theologically. He's wanting clarity on a medieval church practice there. He's not really intending to blow the, blow the lid off the medieval church that kind of happens but it's almost by accident in the background is this this development between uh, 1515 and 1520 and one of the key moves in this development is and and this is very odd for modern evangelicals to get their heads around one of the key moves is his changing understanding of baptism that he's been taught that baptism to put it crudely sort of baptism cleans people up a bit or damps sin down mm-hmm. but the problem then is you continue to sin so you need to move to the other sacraments to to have the problem of sin dealt with luther in in his reading of paul comes to realize that paul does not really talk about baptism in terms of cleansing primarily it's it's death and resurrection and that coordinates with his changing understanding of sin, that sin is, sin is not being dirty. Sin is not being imperfect or wounded. It's not the equivalent of a sprinter who sprained his leg and can still run, but just can't yeah. run as fast as he should. Yeah. Sin is actually a status, a status of death. And you know, dead people, they don't need to be healed. They don't need to be cleaned. They need to be resurrected. And so Luther, his, his understanding of justification will really arise out of this intensified understanding of the seriousness of sin, that, uh, um, that we are sinful, we're dead in sins, and therefore we need resurrection. That goes to what we were 
alluding to earlier in the conversation about the externality of the gospel. Mm. Ultimately, for Luther, the gospel is not about, you know, get together with Jesus and he'll heal you and he can coordinate with you to make you better. The gospel is Jesus has died and risen in your place. And only by grasping his word by faith and being united to him can you enjoy death to sin and resurrection to newness of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Praise the Lord for that truth, man. It's Mm. so good. Um, I was wondering if you could in German sing a mighty fortress is our God. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. (laughs) Luther, Hey, we, Luther was a family man. I love that. You know, and and the book is sad. You sort of mentioned the, you know, the deaths of two of his children. Yeah. yeah. I, I just love that part of him as a family man. Like we, again, we like Luther just because <clears throat> he's one of us. Like he's, he's one of us, you know, he's what people would call like a pastor theologian, right. Or a theologian. Yeah. pastor. But um, you quoted him saying, <clears throat> though I'm a great doctor, I haven't yet progressed beyond the instruction of, of children in the 10 commandments, the creed and the Lord's prayer. I still learn and pray these every day with my Hans and my little Lena. <laughs> Can yeah. you speak to him as, as a, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a father and, and what could us fathers even learn from Luther? Yeah. Well, uh, there are a number of things, of course, to, to remember about Luther in this context. First of all, he's really the first great significant theologian, uh, certainly of the last thousand years, who was also a father. Uh, you know, uh, although you know, Augustine was a father, but the family was a little <laughs> unusual. Uh, Luther, Luther is the first we might think of a sort of regular family man yeah. who was also an extremely important church leader and theologian. So that's that's one thing to remember about him. Second thing is the the passage you quote is is emblematic of a lot of what Luther writes. That for him, children were the paradigm of what a Christian should be because a child has that innocent trust in their father. And that of course is what Luther wants to see Christians having in their, uh, in their heavenly father. There's a very moving description that Luther himself gives of the death of little Lena of Magdalena when he's there as she's dying and she has this, innocent trust that everything's going to be okay because God is a loving heavenly father. And he's in agony of soul. He's having to turn away from her to hide his tears because he doesn't feel that he has the same faith that she has. Mm. So it's very moving this, this, uh, uh, this relationship he has with, with his children. You know, what can we as fathers, uh, learn from Luther? Uh, I think, uh, um, Certainly one of the the things that Luther does that I think a lot of us fall down on, uh, I don't think he patronizes his children spiritually, if I could put it that way. You get the impression that this is a man who talked down to his kids. This is a man who understood children, was able to to reach them at their level. One thing I've always tried to do at church when little children come up to speak to me is I always crouch down so that we're at eye level so that they're not looking up to some towering figure looming over them. Uh, they're actually seeing eye to eye. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, that Luther does well is he takes children seriously. He doesn't patronize them. And if anything, he looks up to them and admires them. Uh, and, you know, they're not, 
for him, they're not something that needs to be overcome so they can become adults. There's actually something about them that is, is perennially beautiful to him. Can you, um, the greatest fear in my life as a father is the safety of my kids. With all that you've read from Luther, did he discover anything uh, through the death of his children that obviously is a Christian truth that helped him get through it? Um, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, Luther did write a lot, so we know more about his inner life than we know about an awful lot of men of his era and before his inner life. I think one could certainly say that the, uh, the pain of the death, particularly of Magdalena, was something that stayed with him. And, and I would say, you know, maybe what we learn from Luther is that you never actually get over these things. You simply learn to live with the pain. You know, thank God both my sons are alive and well. I've never had to face the loss of a child. And I've always thought that I don't know that I could cope with that. Even as a Christian, I don't know if I could cope with that. And I think that Luther, uh, Luther's honesty allows us to see that it's okay to feel terrible pain when we see the havoc that, that sin and death has wreaked on this world. So there's that aspect to it. I'd also say that there's a, uh, I suppose there's a realism about Luther's day in general. Death was a much more present thing for 16th century people. We have tended to push death physically to the margins of society. You know, people die in hospitals and hospices. They get cremated or buried far away from where we have to see them. You know, in Luther's day, Luther would have walked past the graves of his children to go to church on a Sunday. Wow. What, what kind of an impact would that have on how you think about worship when, you, when, when the dead are, are present with you? There's yeah. a very moving picture, yeah, the is. famous picture of Luther preaching where uh, he's on one side and he's pointing. He's got his hand on the Bible, open Bible, and he's pointing with a finger to a crucifix. You know, it's the, symbolizing what he's doing, preaching. Well, and uh, down, down on the other side of the painting, there are, there are, there's a small group of figures gathered. The men are all standing. The women are sitting on stools, and there are a few children there. And a couple of the, the children have their faces covered with like a scarf. You can't see. They're not COVID masks, but it kind of almost looks like a COVID mask right. in the 16th century. And that was the painter's convention for indicating that those children had died. And it always strikes me as fascinating that here you have this picture with Luther's family wow. and the dead children are still present. Oh. The dead are still present among the living. And I think that's something that, yeah, that's something that modern Christianity has lost. That, uh, you know, in the ancient church, the early Christians would meet for meals in graveyards, which strikes us as odd now, but they would meet there because they felt the presence of dead Christians there and you still have it in the 16th century and we've lost that now. And I, I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but I'm not sure that it's a good thing that we've lost it. Uh, Dr. Truman, <clears throat> that's so, that's encouraging and edifying. It's like, and just as a side note, you like you're a theologian, you're a church, a church historian, like historical theology, man, there's so much value I've been noticing lately as I've been reading more, um, 
you know, history of theology and Christianity. It, it, it's just so helpful. So thanks again, just for giving us all this stuff. Have you seen the, um, the Luther insult generator? I have. I love it. I recommend it to my students all the time. It is fantastic. <laughs> so. All right, let's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit, I'm going to hit the listener with a few. <laughs> I, I was like, which one should I read? I literally screenshot 48 last night. <clears throat> oh, I'm not going to do them all, but let me say, ready? <clears throat> So, listener, these are these are quotes. <clears throat> I haven't validated them. Are these real quotes? Do we know? Oh, they're all real quotations. <laughs> I, he was. He was. I, I, I tend to think that there are only three men in history who should have done Twitter, and they all died before it was invented: uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, Oscar right. Wilde, and Martin Luther. Those are the three guys who could have pulled it off. That is so. He would have been the father. So here's some insults. <laughs> Sound bites, quotes from the insult generator. You are a wolf and apostle of Satan. And that's a- against Latimus. Next one. I beg everyone who can <laughs> I beg every- I beg everyone who can to flee from you as from the devil himself. Next one. <laughs> Perhaps you want me to die of un- unrelieved boredom while you keep on talking. <laughs> uh, you are a little pious prancer. Let me do two more and we'll be done with these. I think that if you were alone in the field, an angry cat would be enough to scare you away. <laughs> this guy. Okay. Um, <clears throat> okay. Here's the very last one. I was frightened. At, I was frightened and thought I was dreaming. <laughs> it was such. <laughs> sorry. It was such a thunderclap. <laughs> such a great. <laughs> such a great horrid fart. Did you let go here? <laughs> You certainly pressed with great might to let out such a thunderous fart. It is a wonder that it did not tear your whole, your whole belly apart. <laughs> I'm sorry. He was a red in tooth and claw guy. Um, anybody who thinks politics today is nasty just needs to spend a little time in the 16th century. So, but that makes me also think like, oh man, one of the, oh, one of the best parts of the book is when you... You, some sort of, I didn't, I wrote it down somewhere, but you say essentially something like this. You're like, <clears throat> you know, Luther essentially was, uh, you know, aware of his depravity, you know, and like, oh, wretched man that I am. I'm, I'm so horrible. Who will save me? Blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, he was exactly right because of his in like total wicked anti, you know, like just the way he wrote about the Jews. So he, he's not all coconuts and pineapples. He's like, He's a horrible man, like in this sense, right? In in a sense, yes. I mean, in, there's a sense in which his view of the Jews was fairly conventional in the 16th century. It was a bad time to be Jewish in Europe. Uh, but his the extremity of expression of that uh, was was quite remarkable, even for the 16th century. And of course, post Nazism, post Holocaust it takes on an even darker hue that it might otherwise have had. So yes, he was definitely a very flawed human being. Uh, And again, in an odd way, that's one of the reasons why I wouldn't say I like him, but I I like to reflect upon him because it's a good reminder that even a man who achieved so many good things could also do some pretty diabolical things as well. Totally. Realizing that from sort of all of our heroes, if you will, um, <clears throat> the reformed folks would say that the chief end of man is to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
what do you think Luther would say? I don't think Luther would object to that. Uh, I think that that would be his, uh, you know, that human beings, we are here to bring glory to God. I think that would be his, his position as well. Um, that's not a point that would divide Lutherans and Reformed, I don't think. Mm-hmm. So there's um, Reformed Baptists out there, mm. people quote, quote, Reformed Baptists, but there's not Reformed Lutherans. Why is that? Well, Reformed is in, in many ways defined over, historically defined over against Lutheran. The big division in Protestantism in the 16th century occurs in 1529 when Huldrych Zwingli and Martin Luther fail to agree. They, they agree 14 and a half out of 15 theological points at a meeting they have in, in the German city of Marburg. The half point they disagree on is, is whether uh, Christ is truly present according to both his divinity and his humanity in the elements of bread and wine at the Lord's Supper. And while Luther rejected the medieval mass idea as a sacrifice and asserted that the bread and wine were truly present at communion, he also thought that the body and blood of Jesus Christ were truly present at communion as well. Luther, uh, Zwingli rejects that, asserting a more symbolic view. And that really is the is the dividing point between between Lutherans and the Reformed and you know it would be very hard to be uh, well, one couldn't be a Reformed Lutheran any more than one could be a round triangle or right. a, you know a, so, a cubic you know, sphere what I'm saying is <clears throat> like a lot of people like we had R. Scott Clark on the on the show last week but oh yeah a lot of people would say well you you can't be a Reformed Baptist like that's not <laughs> Right. So regardless yeah. of what people think that, about that, but the idea is it, uh, just using this label reformed Lutheran, yeah. can't there be a, re, a reformed guy or a Baptist guy or gal or whatever, who pretty much um, agrees with most of Luther, except for on, you know, on the Lord's supper and baptism and, yeah. or yeah, like what I yeah. only know one and it's that rapper guy and he just left reformed right, and right. Lutheran. so i was just curious if you had some insight into yeah that. i mean i would regard myself as having strong lutheran sympathies on a whole host of fronts mm. but historically the dividing line between reformed and lutheran is that sacramental thing and i'm right. not with the lutherans on on the sacraments so you could certainly have a reformed baptist i think who Sorry, Scott, if you're out there listening when you use the term, because it's conventional. Uh, you could certainly have a Reformed Baptist who holds to uh, Luther's understanding of justification, Luther's understanding of the relationship of the law and the gospel, Luther's understanding of church and state, uh, Luther's understanding of Christian calling. You, you could have a Reformed Baptist who holds to a whole heap of Luther's ideas. The defining idea of Lutheranism, though, as, as it's confessionally understood, is the understanding of the Lord's Supper and the understanding of the natures of Christ that lies behind that. And on that point, if you're reformed by definition, you're rejecting those positions. So I kind of want to bring up an, another topic because you're talking about um, Luther and Zwingli with the Lord's Supper. It seems like Luther interpreted the Lord's Supper based on the law and gospel distinction. Can you talk about his understanding of the law and gospel distinction? And personally, do you think there's exegetical merit for viewing it 
in all of Scripture? Okay, yeah, that's a good question. Um, Luther's understanding of law and gospel is, is essentially that they're antithetical to each other. The law is there really to demand that you measure up to God's standards of holiness. Uh, and in a fallen world, the primary function, therefore, of the law is to, to make you realize that you cannot do that. It's to reveal to you the status of death in which you naturally find yourself morally. Uh, the gospel... Um, is God's promise in Christ. You don't have to do anything. The gospel is what I was talking about earlier on, the idea that God has done something on your behalf. Luther says, you know, the law says, do this and it is never done. The gospel says, believe this and it is already done. So that's the the basic idea. Uh, Now, when it comes to, do you find that in the whole of scripture, one really has to sort of nuance exactly what you mean by the whole of scripture do i find that in every verse of scripture pull a verse out at random can i understand that as law and understand that as gospel i um well real quick it seems like a interpretive grid like he he decided that it is jesus there because if i get up i mean correct me where i'm wrong on this but if i get up and take communion and it's not actually jesus he, it seems like Luther saw law and gospel as an interpretive lens to even the Lord's Supper. Oh, yeah, because if the Lord's Supper is something that you are doing, as in, you know, if the benefit from the Lord's Supper comes from you remembering Jesus on the cross, you know, it's a moment in the service where you can remember Jesus on the cross, or it's a moment in the service when you kind of feel bound together with your brothers and sisters who are gathered there. Uh, if it's something that you do, then the Lord's Supper becomes law. And that, of course, is why Luther reacts so violently to Zwingli. For, for us today, we look back and say, really? Was it really worth blowing Protestantism in two <laughs> over that issue? Could we not agree to differ? Well, Luther would say, no, because if we agree to differ on that, what we're essentially doing is, is eliding the difference, uh, mitigating the difference between the law and the gospel uh, and turning the gospel into law at that point. So, yeah, you're, you're correct. We're, within his sort of imaginative or his theological framework, that's a very serious thing, uh, very, very serious thing indeed. What would you say? Um... Same with baptism, by the way. Uh, you know, if you think baptism is your way of professing faith, then that's law. For Luther, baptism is no Christ being offered to you in the water attached to the promised word. So I was just a, just a a little gloss there. Oh, sure. What would you say um, that, that the rank and file modern Christians today could sort of um, would do well to glean from Luther on like, where, where have we almost gone full circle to where we might also be thinking oh let's just do our best and if we do our best god will give us grace where like i'm sure some of these things still like almost nothing has changed we've gone full circle where where do you think are the the most obvious ones well i think first of all it just in general luther would say and i think i would agree with him that there is that kind of self-justifying impulse within us all we we want to we want to be good before god on the basis of stuff we've done and I think that's a natural human tendency. Uh, I would also, one of the things that I found most helpful about Luther is actually his theology of preaching. Uh, I think as, as Christians, we often tend to, to think of preaching as the transmission of information. 
we go to hear a sermon in order to learn more about the Bible. Well, when you think about that, you might as well read a Bible commentary. (laughs) Probably it's easier to sit at home with a Bible commentary and you spend time underlining things, making notes, wrestling things through, or go to a Bible study for discussion. Uh, Luther's theology of preaching is not that the preacher is there to explain the Bible to you. Certainly he should do that, but that's just the beginning of the task. The, the purpose of the preacher is to confront you with Christ. The purpose of the preacher is to bring a word from outside. You know, when you read the Bible, when I read the Bible, it's very easy to read it through our own lenses and mm-hmm. to uh, modify it in ways that, that scratch us where we're itching and that feed us just where we want to be fed. Mm-hmm. Luther saw the preacher. When the preacher preaches, it's a word that comes from outside. You have less control over how you receive it. So when the preacher preaches the law, you can't quickly flip over to the next page. You know, you, you, you can't dodge the bit of the law. The preacher can hammer home the law. When the preacher brings the gospel, also, you know, you can be despairing. And there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can read that is of any help. But when the preacher proclaims the word and the preacher presses the gospel on your heart for luther that's a dramatic moment that's a moment where things change and i would say when you start to think about preaching that way it makes church more exciting and it makes listening to preaching more active than it might otherwise have been that you're going to church expecting expecting god to speak to you Hmm. That really does transform one's notion of, of church. Absolutely. Yeah, Dr. Carl Truman, and then just talking today on, you know, his book, Luther on the Christian Life, Cross and Freedom from Crossway. Such a good book. Hope you guys pick that up. And like we said, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We'll be giving that away as well as a bunch of other stuff. But um, sort of last thing, you have a book that is just about to um, be released, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self cultural amnesia, expressive individualism is and the road to sexual revolution. Two questions on that. One, do you quote or reference Luther at all in that book? <laughs> and two, what's that book all about? Uh, I think I do reference Luther at some point because I, <laughs> I talk about um, the, the changes that the Reformation brought in its wake. So I'm pretty sure I, I mentioned Luther there. The book's actually about it. It started... Uh, it had a twofold beginning. One, uh, Rod Dreher, who writes for the American Conservative, uh, asked me if I would write an introduction to uh, a cultural theorist called Philip Reef, famously wrote The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And uh, I, I started to do some work relative to that. And at the same time, I became intrigued with uh, the, the statement, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Uh, and what, int- what intrigues me about that statement is how it's become plausible, not wow. just to gender theorists, but to the ordinary person in the street. You say that to them and it makes sense. Hmm. So I, I became interested in what changes have to take place in culture for that sentence to become plausible to the ordinary man or woman in the street. And, that, uh, and in thinking and wrestling with that and wrestling through the stuff I was getting from Philip Reef, I became convinced that... Christians think incorrectly about the sexual revolution. We tend to think about the sexual revolution in terms of changes in behavior. And we tend to get confused as to why it's happened so quickly. 
Well, the, the argument in my book is the sexual revolution is actually symptomatic of a much deeper change, a change in how we understand the human self, how we understand our identity. Uh, and actually, the sexual revolution only seems to have happened quickly because the fundamental changes in how we understand the self were already in place by the 1960s and had been developing over several hundred years. So what we're seeing now, you know, are the last dominoes falling, if you like. Uh, it's become more obvious what's happened in society to us, but actually we're simply seeing the outworking of a process that began three, four hundred years ago. That's good stuff. Thanks for joining us today. Like, really, really do appreciate it. And thanks for encouraging us. And we hope to chat with you down the road, brother. Aloha. Thanks very much. It's been great to be with you. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to...